Hebrews chapter 6, and I want to read the first eight verses. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected, and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. We in the Reformed world, the Reformed faith are big fans of systematic theology um, as a general rule. Um, I, I myself in particular am, am fond of uh, the systematic approach to theology um, and that might sound like a, 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 I don't know, a strange expression to you or a big word to you or something, but um, it really is just an organized way of looking at the faith. We read the Nicene Creed, we recite the Heidelberg Catechism, for example, and those are systematic theologies, systematic organizations of the, of the principles of theology. And really, it's impossible to do theology um, without a systematic approach um, to organizing things in our minds. That's the way our minds work. Um, so creeds and confessions... Formulas like the, the five points of Calvinism, for example, those are all um, systematic theologies. None of them are infallible, though. And there's a temptation, a danger that surrounds the use of systematic theology that every systematic theologian needs to be aware of. And that is the temptation to latch on to the expressions of doctrines that we like, that comfort us, that make us feel good, given our own particular background and wiring and, and whatever, and experience and so forth, um, and then to ignore any part, of, uh, any part of Scripture that challenges those assumptions. We have to be, continue to be open to learning. It is tempting to kind of search around until you find a, a, a doctrinal formula that you like, that you're comfortable with, and then just kind of latch on to that and say anything else that challenges that or anything else that, that um, uh, confronts me with a need for a more nuanced, a more um, uh, complex approach to the faith is something I just don't worry about. Well, I, you know, I, I know what I believe and I've kind of got, I've landed on my simplistic understanding of the faith and I'm not going to let that be... Um, challenged at all by the scriptures. Hebrews is a book characterized by warnings. His audience is somewhere in the process of defecting from the gospel. We're not given the details, so there's a lot we don't know. We don't know if it's some of them or all of them. 
Maybe they're considerate, considering it, I should say. Maybe they're considering this change in their understanding. Maybe they're a little ways down the road already. The danger is very real, though. And what we see throughout here is a, is a loving pastor urgently calling the sheep to reconsider the path they're on, to see their, the danger that they're in. So he mentions the elementary principles of the faith of Christ. He talks about going on to perfection. He's not talking about, he's not necessarily just talking about his own discussion or his own discourse here in the book of Hebrews. He's talking about us as believers. Not to remain in a primitive, immature state of the faith. What is he talking about specifically? Well, all of the things mentioned in verses 1 through 3, when he says, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection from the dead, and of eternal judgment. It is interesting to note, I think important to note, that all of the things that he mentions there, all of the elements that he's talked about, are all things that could be said of Old Testament biblical faith. Laying on of hands was a symbol of the gift of the Spirit in anointing uh, prophets, priests, and kings to office. Repentance was, of course, a major part of the Old Testament. Continuing call to repentance, as we just read in in Jeremiah chapter 8. Repentance from dead works. Dead works which, which... can encompass, on the one hand, the more overt acts of iniquity and law-breaking, drunkenness and fornication and greed and stealing and violence and things like that. But it could also refer to, uh, closely related to that, empty religious formalism, outward ritual done in order to curry favor with God. Uh, the, the approach to Israel, uh, approach of Israel very much seemed to be many of them uh, uh, saw the ritual and the ceremony and so forth as a way of just kind of getting God off their back so that they could, you know, that they could avert judgment and they could kind of live their life the way they wanted to as long as they did these rituals and ceremonies in order to kind of buy God off. Either of those would be uh, encompassed by the idea of dead works from which Israel is called to repent. And faith in Christ, faith in Christ, uh, faith in God, um, as, the, as it says there, faith toward God is of course a major part of the call of the, um, the center of Old Testament biblical religion. Resurrection of the dead is not as clearly taught in the Old Testament as it is in the New, but it is certainly taught. And this is a major focus of the experience of the Jewish faith and of eternal judgment. All of those things, as I said, are elements in the Old Testament. I didn't mention baptisms because I want to focus on that a little bit. I think that in particular points us to what the author is talking about. The word baptisms, you note in the English, is in the plural, so it is in the Greek. And in that plural form, that word is never used to describe Christian baptism. 
but rather the washings, the ceremonial washings and ablutions that were part of the Old Testament, which is why some modern translations, instead of saying baptisms, will say washings or ablutions, recognizing that idea that uh, this, is, this is almost certainly not Christian baptism that he's talking about. That word appears once, once uh, that word in that form, baptismos, appears uh, later on in, um, uh, in the book of Hebrews, twice in the book of Mark. Every time that word is used in that form in the New Testament, it's referring to Jewish ceremonial washings. Okay? So all of this is describing what he is talking about, about not laying again the foundation. He's not talking about, um, let's not talk anymore about the basic elements of the Christian faith. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, let's not go backwards to an immature and imperfect expression of the biblical faith. It's no sin for a Jew to be a Jew. In the days of Moses, or David, Isaiah. But Judaism was always incomplete. It was a pointer to something else. Meant to point them forward. Any faithful understanding of Judaism would see that. The Old Testament is full of expressions of longings for that which was promised. That which would one day come. And so when the promise comes and is seen and is revealed for a person at that point to remain a Jew, religiously speaking, is indeed a sin. It's a refusal to grow up, a refusal to accept that which, was, which Judaism was for, which means to stay in Judaism after the coming of Christ, is a betrayal of Judaism itself. Because Judaism was all pointing forward to the Messiah, to the coming of Christ. But the Messiah has come. A faithful practice of Judaism was all about that promise. Everything about the Old Testament faith was meant to point them forward to the Messiah. The seed that would overturn the work of Satan and inaugurate the eternal kingdom. Now in the Old Testament period, many misunderstood the Jewish faith. It's true. A great many did. They saw it as a way, as we said, through ceremonies of placating God, buying his favor, which is essentially a pagan view. They were, even though they named it the worship of Jehovah and worshiped in the temple of Jerusalem, they were doing the exact same things the pagans around them did, where you try and buy God off and placate the gods or God, however you saw that. Try to Try to earn some favor or some boon from them through your sacrifices and ceremonies. They thought, earnestly thought, that the gods actually benefited in some way from the ceremonies, from the sacrifices. God's response to that idea is, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. If God needed something, how could we on earth provide that for him? So it was all pointing forward. As I said, there were some Jews that, that, that practiced Judaism in a pagan way. There were also those Jews who understood. And they saw it clearly. And they, were, and they were looking forward, earnestly waiting for the hope of Israel to come. 
But the Hebrews, the audience of the book of Hebrews here, they had seen that one. They had learned, they had acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah. And so for them now to return back to Judaism, well, it couldn't possibly be the right and true expression of Judaism since that was all about looking forward to Christ who had come. Therefore, it could only be the second or the other expression of Judaism, that pagan understanding, that legalistic, self-righteous desire to, to earn favor with God through ceremony so that one would then be free to live one's life the way you wanted to yourself. It's like if a grown man wanted to go back to kindergarten, wanted to go back to elementary school, it's no sin for a kindergartner to be a kindergartner. But when someone's gone through school, they've gone through all of those things, they've graduated, they've gone out into the world, they've become an adult, and then they say, boy, I think I'll just go back to being a kindergartner. Well, there is something really wrong with that man. Something's gone badly wrong. The whole point of school is to prepare you for what comes after school. Not just to stay there, and certainly not to return there after you've gone on. What he says here then would apply equally to any conscious rejection of the gospel. Any knowledgeable apostasy from the gospel. This is a difficult passage. The book of Hebrews was one of the last books to be accepted into the canon of the New Testament by the early church. And the reason was this passage. And particularly, the way this passage was used by certain cults, and not cults, but sects within Christianity in the early days, the Novatians and the Montanists. We've talked about them some in the church history class. They were rigorous sects that said, if you were baptized and then you committed some grave sin after that, like adultery, for example, you couldn't be forgiven. You could never come back. If you were, even if you were repentant and everything and acknowledged it, you still, you were done. You could never be a Christian again. And the church as a whole wrestled with those and, and ultimately came to the view, um, what the majority view of the church was, was, that that was not true. And there are biblical examples to the contrary. And that was not what this text was talking about. What this talk, text is talking about is going back to the Old Testament religion, which, as we said before, it was not a denial of the gospel to be a Jew in the Old Testament period, but to go back to that after Christ had came was a rejection of the gospel itself. And that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. When we understand that, then we can resolve the difficulty generally with our theology as a whole and yet keep the seriousness of the warning intact. And that's the danger that I was talking about other, that we would allow our rather shallow understanding of systematic theology in a doctrine like, for example, the perseverance of the saints, the elect of God will never fall away, that I would allow that shallow understanding to let me just essentially ignore this warning and say, well, the elect can never fall away, therefore I don't need to listen to this warning. Some things he's not talking about, though. He's not talking about someone who struggles with sin. Even serious sin. Someone even who falls into a period of being given over to sin for a time. 
David did. He didn't lose his salvation. We're not talking about a time of doubt or despair, even struggling with belief. Jeremiah did. Elisha did. Moses did. We're not talking about someone who has just any kind of outward connection to the church or any profession of faith. We're not somebody who has a merely superficial outward understanding of Christianity that then abandons that Christianity that, the, that they have definitely committed the, the sin that, that Hebrews is talking about. We're not talking about somebody necessarily that grows up in a Christian church and again maybe has a, an immature and superficial understanding of the faith that they walk away from for a time. Our own experience shows that happens pretty frequently. Young people grow up and they become, they become adults and they never really saw the importance of Christianity. They kind of just went through the motions for their parents' sake or whatever. And they drift away for a time and then often after they reach some maturity, after life knocks them around a little bit, then they realize the importance of it and they come back. That happens all the time. That's not what this is talking about. None of those situations are irremediable. This is someone who has a real experience of Christianity. Someone who has seen the truth. Someone who has experienced the gifts of the Holy Spirit on some level. As he says, they have tasted the heavenly gift. They've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the good work of God and the powers of the age to come. They have some level of repentance from sin. They have turned away at least outwardly from a, from a life of habituated sin and turned in a different direction for a time. And then, this person who decides for one reason or another to walk away, to abandon Christianity, to deny the gospel. This is what Jesus refers to as the unforgivable sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It is to ascribe the work of the Spirit to the devil, as the Pharisees did, when they accused him of casting out demons by the prince of demons, which was the particular accusation that sparked off that discussion of Jesus' of the, of the, of the, un, the um, unforgivable sin. It's blasphemy of the Spirit particularly, because it means that a person has been taught by the Spirit of God, and has then said... What the Spirit of God taught me was a lie, was a deception. To leave Christianity is to call the Spirit of God a liar. That's why Jesus says a man can blaspheme the Son of God and be forgiven, but he cannot blaspheme the Spirit of God and be forgiven. What is the difference? A man might say, and all kinds of people do say, you know, ah, Jesus, he was a charlatan, he was a, you know, a madman, he was, maybe he was a good prophet, but he wasn't the savior. Maybe he was a nice guy, but he was deluded, he didn't really rise from the dead, his crucifixion didn't mean anything. And that person is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And that person can't, not, I'm sorry, that person is blaspheming the Son. And that person can be brought to repentance. But there are those who have actually received the knowledge, the understanding from the Spirit of the truth of the gospel and then rejects it. And that is the blasphemy of the Spirit that the Scriptures talk about. I want to read here 
a statement um, on this subject, on this passage from John Calvin. I think very much is to the point. There are, here arises a new question. How can it be that he who has once made such progress should afterward fall away? For God, it may be said, calls none effectually but the elect. And Paul testifies that they are really his sons who are led by his spirit. And he teaches us that it is a sure pledge of adoption when Christ makes us partakers of his spirit. The elect are also beyond the danger of finally falling away. For the father who gave them to be preserved by Christ, his son, is greater than all. And Christ promises to watch over them all so that none may perish. To all this I answer that God indeed favors none but the elect alone with the spirit of regeneration, and that by this they are distinguished from the reprobate, for they are renewed after his image and receive the earnest of the spirit in hope of future inheritance. And by the same spirit, the gospel is sealed in their hearts. But I cannot admit that all of this is any reason why he should not grant the reprobate also some taste of his grace, why he should not irradiate their minds with some spark of his light, why he should not give them some perception of his goodness and in some sort engrave a word on their hearts. Otherwise, where would be the temporal faith mentioned by Mark 4.17? There is therefore some knowledge, even in the reprobate, which afterwards vanishes away, either because it did not strike root sufficiently deep or because it withers being choked up. Mark 4.17 that he refers to is the parable of the sower. And you remember in the parable of the sower, there was seed that fell on the shallow ground, that seed that sprung up with joy. And Jesus says, these are they that believed for a time. A temporary faith, superficial faith, an outward faith, ultimately not a true faith. But you can't tell the difference in the moment. So Calvin's point is, yes, we believe in election. God's election is permanent. The elect will never fall away. All those that have true faith are preserved in that faith to the end. But there are many who are not elect, who nonetheless have some appearance and experience of faith. We don't know God's election. We don't know who is elect and who isn't. That's his business. It's not ours. Now, that doesn't mean we need to live in fear about worrying about whether we are or are not elect. But it does, need, does mean that we all need to be continued to ex- exhorted to continue to trust in God, to walk in faith, to repent of sin, and to continue to stand only in the righteousness of Christ. You know, times in my life when I was particularly struggling with sin, and I have felt this temptation... I imagine many of you have as well. The temptation to just say, you know what, if I just walked away from Christianity, if I just stopped being a Christian, then this wouldn't hurt so bad. I wouldn't have that struggle because I'm feeling this intense tension and pressure between the sin that I just can't seem to get out of my life and my relationship with Jesus. I know they're in tension. I know they're in conflict, but I just don't know how to resolve it. Well, if I can't get rid of the sin, maybe I could just get rid of the relationship. That would resolve the tension and the pain. It's a temptation. It was a strong temptation because it was a strong pressure. 
Now that temptation, as we said before, like all temptation, is a lie. It's an illusion. Walking away from Christ will not relieve the pressure of my guilt because that comes from the image of God within me and the knowledge of his judgment. But that's not how it feels at the time. What I was keenly aware of, though, and what protected me from that temptation ultimately was the knowledge that there are some lines that cannot be uncrossed. It wasn't something that could simply be tried out a little bit. You can't abandon Christianity on just a sort of a trial basis just to kind of see once one hardens one's heart like that. And our own experience bears that out. As someone who has a real experience, an adult, a mature experience of Christianity that has progressed in the faith for some time and then turns away because of it, maybe because of temptation, maybe because of pressures from their peer group, from their family, different things like that that might pull someone away from the faith. And someone who walks away from the faith often then becomes the hardest kind of person to reach and the bitterest enemies of Christianity. Simon Magus in the book of Acts is one. Simon the sorcerer, the one who became, you know, was baptized, experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, experienced the gifts of the Spirit, wanted to buy the gifts of the Spirit from the apostles. And Peter said, I I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness. And he left the faith and became one of Christianity's bitterest enemies over the next 20 years. We know that from the, the, the record of church history. He advanced the Gnostic movement, which, which, which was a fundamental corruption of what the gospel was. Or think of King Saul, who again experienced the gifts of the Spirit. They said he became, the Spirit came on him and he became as a new man. That bumbling, foolish kid that couldn't even find his father's donkeys successfully led Israel into battle against his enemies for years. And then turned away, rebelled against God, and descended into madness and despair as a result. Or Judas Iscariot, about whom Jesus said it was better that he'd never been born. Hebrews go so far as to say, they crucify again the Lord for themselves and put him to shame. Now note what he says. He says, for themselves, Jesus is not re-crucified. But for them, it is as if they were saying that Jesus, who has been, who experienced all that suffering, all that disgrace, all that shame, but then was vindicated as the righteous one of God by his resurrection, was in fact guilty of what the Pharisees said about him. That he was no savior, that he was a charlatan, and therefore was rightly crucified. That's the meaning of this. That to abandon Christianity was to say that the Sanhedrin was right to condemn him as a blasphemer and crucify him. And that's the unforgivable sin. Not because it's a blasphemy of the Son of God, but because it's a blasphemy of the Spirit of God. The spirit who actually taught them differently. The parable of the the, the wicked husbandman shows that the Pharisees knew Jesus was the Messiah. They knew he was the son of God. 
but they rejected him anyway because it meant the loss of their position. It meant the loss of their power and they were not willing to accept that. And so they rejected him anyway. This sin is also spoken of by John in 1 John chapter 5. Verse 16 and 17, he says, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Hebrews' teaching here is not given so that we could know that someone else had committed this sin. It's not about us being able to look around at others and say, oh, I think maybe you're committing the unforgivable sin. It was a warning to them. And it's therefore a warning to us. We don't know what's going on in other people's hearts. We don't know what their experience is or what they are rejecting. People might, for various reasons, have merely a superficial understanding of the gospel. They might walk away for one reason or another and later actually get saved. That happens. That happens all the time. Well, the weight of this is not given for us to judge other people. That's not the point of this. But rather for us to take heed to ourselves. To cling to Christ. To, to, to resist the temptation to walk away because of a desire to sin. Remember we talked earlier about the deceptiveness of sin. And the deceptiveness of sin is not primarily or most seriously that it seems like a really good and fun thing to do, and so then we do it. That is deceptive, but that isn't the worst deception. The worst deception is then it fools and tricks us into thinking that if we abandon Christ, that we could then pursue our sin without punishment, without pain. Because Satan's goal in the temptation is not to get you to sin. Satan's goal in the temptation is to get you to defect from Christ. And so perhaps it's a desire to sin. Perhaps it's a desire to be well thought of by some group. The pressures of persecution. That appears to be a lot of what was going on with the Hebrew, the the, the audience in the Hebrews, that their leaving Judaism was extremely difficult. Because if you did that, if you converted to Judaism, you'd lose your whole social community. You'd lose your family. You'd lose your economic contacts. The Jews kept close together. They mostly operated as communities within, as as most ethnic groups did in the Roman Empire. And Jews would not deal with someone who had converted to Christianity. They would reject them entirely. And that was very painful and very difficult. And it appears to be, as Hebrews will talk about later on, it appears to be that pressure which is tempting them to abandon the gospel and return to Judaism. But we have to remember, as our, uh, as, our, um, as our author says here, that there are some lines that can't be uncrossed. We have to remember this world is not our home, and that following Christ always means taking up our cross, dying to this world, and following Him. So our writer ends with this analogy. Verse number 7 and 8 The earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it. Rain, by the way, is frequently in the scriptures used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. 
the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So farmers might they cultivate a lot of land. And there might be they have a particular piece of land. Sometimes the farmers would talk about this. It's just that particular piece of land. I don't know what's wrong with it. You just you plant there and you, you never get any good crops out of it. There's something in the soil, something just wrong with it. They can water it, it can get rained on exactly like the piece of land right next to it. And for whatever reason, and eventually, the farmer's just going to give up. He's going to throw his hands up and let it go foul. Let it go to thorns and thistles, maybe burn it out. But just, for, just forget it. The garden analogy of the orchard, the vineyard, is a common one in the scriptures used for God and his relationship to his people. Several uh, of Jesus' parables use this very metaphor. We've already mentioned the parable of the sower, the wheat and the tares, uh, all the husbandman uh, vineyard analogies that Jesus uses. And it's a common one from the Old Testament. And it's the idea of God as a gardener or as an owner of a plantation or of a, or, or of a, a piece of land and, and why does a gardener, why does a farmer have a crop? Why does, he have a, why does he have a field? Why does he have an orchard? Because he wants fruit. That's the whole point. He wants fruit. It's not there just for him to look at. These are not ornamental trees. They're there in order to provide fruit. God has a purpose for us. Created us to be his servants. To glorify him. To trust him. To live in love and union with him. That's why we, were produced, why we were created. And faith is going to produce love and obedience and ultimately glorification. That's why God created us. That's what he works in us through our salvation, ultimately culminating in our eternal life in the kingdom. So if a person starts out, they're planted in the gospel, they start to sprout, they have that appearance of life, but they just never progress. Maybe they've got leaves, we just read in Matthew the story about Jesus when he comes out of Jerusalem after his first uh, triumphal entry and his first experience in Jerusalem, the last day of his life. He's going out to, um, uh, to, to Bethany to stay the night. He comes by a fruit tree that it's already got the early leaves. It should have fruit on it, even though it's early. It has the leaves. It should have fruit. There's no fruit on it. And he curses it. He says that tree is cursed. It'll never bear fruit again. Which if you didn't understand the whole metaphor, that might just seem sort of petty and vindictive by Jesus just to kind of curse this tree because he was hungry and it didn't give him fruit. But when you understand the whole metaphor and that this is about, this is about Jerusalem that did not give God the fruit it, that, that, God was, that God deserved, it did not give God the love and the, and the worship that God desired from his people, then you understand what Jesus is saying. Now, the purpose of all of this is not to place heavy burdens on us. It's not to make us think we have to be doing some great number of things or God will be angry with us. No, in fact, it's quite the opposite of that. It's to warn us to not try to do that. It's to warn us to continue to rest in Christ. Not to look on our own accomplishments or our own works for the grounds of our favor with God. To know that we are complete in Him and not to defect from Him in righteousness, in self-righteousness and pride. What does God need from us? Does He need our religious rituals? Does He need our good deeds? Does He need our accomplishments? He works all those things in us. 
He just calls on us to trust. To stay with Him. To be patient. And to see the fruits of His work. That's the fruit. They asked Jesus what work they could do to earn the bread of life which He promised. And He told them, this is the work that you will do. Is to believe on Him whom Jesus has sent. uh, Whom God has sent. Now we all flag in our faith. We all falter at times. Our faith at the best of times is weak. But if we continue in Him, if we continue to trust in Him and abide in Him, continue to know that Jesus is our all in all, the completeness of our salvation, then we will bear much fruit because it's His life that works that fruit in us. We just need to stay connected to Him and not defect and not leave. And we do that by faith, by believing, by trusting. And that's why God would do this. You might ask the question, why would he give some of the gifts of the Spirit to someone who is not elect? Who then fall away? That's very hard on the believer, isn't it? It's very hard on us. I remember how hard it was on me when my brother, a year and a half older than me, closer to me than anyone else in the world at the time, and an apparently passionate Christian, one day just decided he didn't believe a word of it and became an atheist. And has persisted in that for... 30 years or so. It was very painful. And it tested my faith. Which was exactly the purpose of this. This is why God does this. I don't know what my brother's future is. But I know why God does these things. Because he tests our faith. Because, and through testing he strengthens and confirms and proves our faith. We, it reveals to us our weakness and vulnerability. That any of us, of ourselves, in our own strength, could and would certainly fall away. And that causes us to cling all the more closely to Christ for safety and protection. And as we abide all the more closely to Christ, we bear more fruit, which is God's purpose. So as I've said many times, don't ignore the warnings of Scripture. Complacency is the enemy of the Christian faith. The doctrines we confess must encompass all of Scripture and not some of them. And we must not let whatever doctrine we believe on the basis of one part of God's Word override things that are said in other parts of God's Word. One of the principles of biblical interpretation is that we allow the clearer and plainer parts of the Scriptures to interpret for us the less clear and less plain parts of scriptures and that's a good and solid principle of interpretation but one of the ways that goes astray sometimes is is when to, to, to someone the clearer and plainer parts of scriptures are those parts of scriptures that I like that make me feel good and comfort my prejudices and those parts of scripture that I call less clear and less plain are those parts of scriptures that challenge my precedent, that, that, that make me uncomfortable and challenge my prejudices. That's why I return to what I said at the beginning of the sermon. We have to continue always to have open hearts that are ready to be rebuked, ready to be admonished, ready to change at the instruction of scriptures, of the scriptures, from all of the scriptures. And often that means that our simplistic understanding of doctrine needs correcting and refining. Which very often doesn't mean 
necessarily that the formulas themselves are wrong. That the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed is, is necessarily wrong at some point. Or the Heidelberg or something. But what it often means is that my understanding of those things is simplistic. And incomplete and immature. God preserves his elect so that they never fall. And one of the ways he preserves his elect is through warnings like this one. So here are the warnings. Recognize the deceptiveness of sin. Recognize the pressure of culture, of peer groups that may be quite subtle. As I said before, the end game of all of these things is the same for the devil. The lure of money, of pleasure, of acceptance by others. The devil's goal is not to get you to sin. The devil's goal is to get you to apostatize, to leave Christ. And he does not give up easily. And some lines can't be uncrossed. God is gracious and forgiving. He accepted David back after David knowingly committed heinous sins. Jesus accepted Peter back after Peter denied knowing Jesus at all at the time of Jesus' greatest hour of trial. But when we harden ourselves against the gospel, harden ourselves against the word of God, like Saul did, like Judas did, when we call the promise of God's salvation a lie, say that Jesus Christ was crucified for nothing, say that the testimony of the Spirit of God to me, when he showed me the truth of the gospel, for me to say that the Spirit of God was lying to me when he told me those things, well, there is a sin that is unto death. I'm not sure we could ever know for sure that someone else had committed that sin. But we must hear the warnings that we could commit that sin and harden ourselves to God's grace beyond the possibility of repentance. And the comfort we can take from this is the knowledge. If we are afraid that perhaps we have committed this sin, well, the answer to that is quite simple. Are you repenting of that? If you are repenting of unbelief, if you're repenting of doubt, if you're repenting of, of, of uh, despair and, 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 and doubt towards God, if you're repenting of those things, then you have not committed that sin. If you had committed the sin, you wouldn't be worried about whether you had committed it or not. Because you would be beyond repentance. So hear the warnings of Christ. Cling to Christ. Endure the pain of knowing that we sin against his goodness. But comforted by the knowledge that we are forgiven and he loves us nonetheless. Knowing in his love who we are and what we do. He is more than strong enough for us. He is more than gracious and loving enough for us. Stay with him. Don't call him a liar. Don't refuse the witness of the Spirit. He will keep his promises. And he will save us to the end. Let's pray. Merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the warnings you give us in Scripture. Even as they are, are uncomfortable... And they are um, challenging to us. Yet we know what good they do in us is that they keep us close to you. Lord, keep us close to you. Strengthen our faith so that we cling to Christ, knowing our weakness. And when we stray, Lord, bring us back. Work repentance and bring us to you. And keep us from that final temptation. Keep us from that temptation of, of the devil that would lead us to leave Christ's side in the mistaken belief that we could then enjoy sin without pain and penalty.
Lord, we confess we do not have the strength of ourselves, which is why we need the bread of life, why we need the nourishing and strengthening of the broken body and shed blood of Christ as we are about to receive a token of that in the supper that you've taught us. As we eat that bread and drink that wine, we pray that you would feed us and strengthen us with that bread of life which will preserve us to the end. We pray all these things in his precious name. Amen.